Okay. If we're if we're on a spreadsheet, I'm going to say 95% of the time we're going to lose. Yeah. We are not a one-year sell, right? Like it's if you're looking at it fees only, fixed fees only, like it's probably never going to happen. It's a three to five year strategy. And that's, I think, what is important in the TPA space is whenever you're vetting out a TPA, it's asking them, who are you owned by and what is your either long-term solution or your exit strategy? Mm. And I think that's key. Hey, what's up, guys? Spencer Smith here, host of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast, sponsored by Pareto Health, ClaimDoc, and PlanSight. Enjoy today's episode. No, no further ado, I'm here with Elizabeth Weyer, who is Vice President of <laughs> National Sales at HPI. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. And why don't I ask right off the bat, HPI, the acronym, what does that stand for? Health Plans, Inc. Health Plans, Inc. Yes. Okay. I knew another HPI, which I won't spend more time on them, but they were something similar in name, but completely different uh, category. But we're going to talk about third-party administration. Yeah. Uh, one, actually, oddly enough, my favorite subjects now. I used to not really know a whole lot about what mm -hmm. TPAs do, and now I found myself gravitated to having this conversation more often than not. So I, I, I'm, I'm happy to dig in with this a little bit more, but why don't, before we get into HPI and before we get into TPAs, the third-party administration yeah. world, why don't we learn a little bit about you, Elizabeth? Great. Um, yeah, Elizabeth Fires. So I live in Kansas City. Uh, I've, I've served kind of nationally, though, for a number of years, but really have kind of a... Um, my heart is in Texas. I've I've done a lot of business in Texas over the last several years. So, cool. um, yeah, definitely excited to be here. I've been in the TPA space now for about ten years. Okay, drank the Kool Aid many years ago. Did you? Okay. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I just I love it. I love whenever you see kind of the light bulb go off for not just the CFO from a financial perspective, but also from the HR person, right? Where they're like, oh, you really could help me quite a bit with with our plan right with with uh education to members and so forth so well making their lives easier too right a good tpa yes. obviously once everything's humming and operational mm -hmm. you guys are quarterbacking the whole thing you're going to yes. make the hr person gal or guys life a lot easier once yep. everything is set up and and functioning well at granite peak analytics our passion is to educate payers and advisors to make informed pbm choices through independent data and unmatched expertise our unique ability to affect eliminate prescription overspend for both plans and patients ensures our advisor clients win and retain business with pharmacy levers. Our role regularly evolves and adapts to meet the unique needs of each client in the rapidly changing pharmaceutical market. We are self-funded experts with a hyper niche on the overly complex world of pharmacy. Our objective approach and full transparency of consulting fees delivers rare financial alignment with our customers. Check out what our clients have to say at granitepeakrx.com. So th that's interesting perspective, though, because I mostly think the financial component, right? Yeah. But you guys get to tow the both of those lines, which is pretty cool. If we're doing what we do really well, it's providing exceptional service to both like the employer level and then also to the member level cool. as well. Why don't we go back in time, though? Because yeah. I think we have a, yeah. you have a couple interesting things, I think, that you told me about of your college career. Sure. And then even <laughs> you didn't start your world in, in insurance either. So no. I'd love to hear the transition. So why don't you take me back to where you studied and what you studied in college? Yes. Yeah. So um, I couldn't quite make up my mind on college. Um, I actually went to three different colleges. Oh, I only got two yeah, over coffee right? this morning. Okay. I'm anxious to hear the third. 
<laughs> so I, uh, I'm from a really small town in Missouri known as Boonville. Um, and in like near Boonville, I went, I started off in college in Fulton, Missouri, ended up lasting a year there and then ended and had a full ride scholarship in sports to Missouri Valley. Um, you said now you said you were a softball and, uh, there was a second and dance and dance. Mm -hmm. Did you have a full yes. ride? combination of those between the two oh wow yeah okay. yeah so predominantly softball i think dance they just they probably needed another <laughs> another gal and i was it so <laughs> so how would that work though did you you actually did you did go there right and you did, I did. both uh, so i did yes softball yeah. season training off season versus dance how did you yeah. manage to do both of those yeah um actually it was it was pretty easy for the most part like for the dance team you were really going out for like the basket like during halftime for like the basketball oh, okay. games and gotcha. stuff right gotcha. so Fairly easy, um, but then I decided to transition to Kansas City, uh, which is how I ended up there. I, I followed a boy at the time to uh, a biblical college, and ironically, the day that I started, he was actually kicked out, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I won't ask why. We don't yeah, want right? to throw him under the bus, but I, I could probably presume a couple of things. But so day one, he gets kicked out, and you're oh, yeah. like, what what now like so how did you yes. figure out after that what to do um i was i was really stubborn my parents uh didn't think i was making the wisest decision especially moving from a full ride uh told me in the very beginning it was this was not the right fit um so but me and my stubbornness i thought i'd prove them wrong and decided to to stay there for the remainder of my years until i graduated so Buckled down, I focused, and then once I graduated, um, I graduated in, in biblical counseling. Decided then I probably wasn't uh, going to end up in counseling, right? Okay. Like I didn't want to go get my doctorate. Would well, so. you had to do get your doctorate in order yeah. to practice? Okay, yeah. so so you naturally did what most people do with a biblical studies degree and go into <laughs> banking, right? Okay. <laughs> right? Okay, so how did the banking world enter into the fray? Yes, yeah. So I needed a job during college. Ended up being a teller at a Walmart branch. Met a lot of very interesting people. Um, and then I thought, okay, this could be my possible career path, right? And so I tried anything and everything in banking. I went from uh, being a teller um, to actually opening up branches like in Arizona um, and then and training and developing people, right? Um, then I went into private wealth and then I kind of dabbled in commercial lending just very briefly. And then I finally thought, this is just not the right fit for me, okay. right? Like I needed to do something else. What, so. what, what was it about it though? Because I, I had told you my two week stint in yeah. the banking world, yeah. the very first job of my career post-college didn't work out for a number of reasons, but yes. what ultimately drove you away from that industry out of curiosity? I was bored. You're bored, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got bored counting other people's I money did. or what? Yeah. I did. Yeah. And I wasn't making any money, yeah. so yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. So then where'd you end up next? What'd you do after that? So I went to, uh, I went to an insurance carrier, Humana, ended up working as an assistant to the sales team um, on their Medicare side. Okay. So it was, it was going to open up a lot of doors for me from a sales perspective. Um, and then as I was there and, and really kind of learning and, and training, um, mm. things changed in our industry and Obamacare happened. And you started to see this shift on especially the Medicare side and the agents that were there. They had cut um, an entire branch, um, which really resulted in about I don't know, 30 or so people getting cut. And for me, it was kind of the the writing on the wall, like, oh, I've got to do something different. Well, what was it specifically about Ob Obamacare that sort of undermined that business? Yes. Um, I, looking back, I can't quite 
I can't quite remember. I just remember it was happening <laughs> and all these people were getting cut. Well, so. you had enough foresight to go, I don't I want did. to be one of those people. So I then did. where did you find yourself next? Yeah. Um, I was really blessed with an opportunity at my previous TPA uh, to come in from a sales perspective. I knew nothing, frankly, about sales. Right. Um, I knew nothing about self-funding or even a third party administrator. I didn't even know what a consultant was at mm -hmm. the time. And so I came in. I was given two kind of huge binders with a bunch of paper. Okay. They said, read over these because it was in November. Right. Nobody wants to talk to a sales rep in, in fourth quarter. They said, read over these. And in January, start calling on folks. And I thought, well, I don't even know who to call or what I would be saying, yeah. right? Well, out of curiosity, getting two binders and just reading through them, did you? Yeah. Did that actually effectively, did it help train you? Did you no. feel? No. <laughs> okay, I thought, maybe, I thought maybe you were one of those few people that could read a, a binder worth of no. paper materials. Okay. okay. No, I, um, I researched everything I could. Um, I did LinkedIn. I reached out to, to folks at the TPA just to try to get a little bit of like mentorship, right? Mm -hmm. Like any mm -hmm. sort of guidance that I could possibly get my hands on, right? And so I think by the time January finally rolled around, I knew enough to somewhat have a very high level conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But anything above that or like below right. that, like no way. Um, I think it was, it was though having a lot of energy and being really invested in my own career, right? It yeah. was like, how am I gonna make this work? Cause there's no way I'm failing at this point. It was it was too good of an opportunity to, to not take advantage of. Well, that's interesting. Cause I had a similar uh, path to get into sales as a little later, not later in my career per se, but I didn't start there and I didn't ever actually envision myself being mm. there. But it was a similar thing where I started in the fourth quarter, didn't know what I was doing, kind of understood the stop loss product uh, well enough to, they felt like, hey, he, he'll pick it up. Mm -hmm. But I, there, was a, there was a fairly steep learning curve. Then on top of that, learning the art of sales yes. on the job in real time and trying to figure out this whole thing. But obviously it worked out and I'm happy it did. Mm -hmm. I just poured everything I could into being the best technical expert of the yes. product I could possibly be. And I felt like the other things might sort of take care of themselves and come naturally over time. Mm -hmm. So did you experience any that yourself? I did. So I um, pretty early on and in that sales position, uh, my previous boss had made a comment about if you can be the resource for people, like that's how you end up getting the business, right? That's like, smart. Yeah. And it may not be at the time when they're asking you the question, like we may not be the great fit at that, at that one point in time, but if they ever have a question and they think I need to call Elizabeth, like that's how you're going to win them over. I had, I, I'd, 100% agree with the person, whoever that was yeah. that gave you that advice. I yeah. found that, like if you, we were talking about the stop loss videos I did. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. uh, you said you watched some of those and helped you learn and yes. I appreciate that. But I am not the absolute foremost stop loss expert in the world. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of people, even in my own organization at Pareto that I ask questions about stop sure. loss. I know a lot, but I don't know everything. But people will would associate me with that, right? Absolutely. I became the person that immediately they're like, well, probably Spencer has a video or call him. And so just by sort of associating and branding myself that way, yeah. you become that. And yes. I think that's absolutely unequivocally true. Mm -hmm. What about picking up the art of sales though? Did you, were you fairly naturally good at it or did it take some time you feel like? Pareto Health is the manager of the largest employee benefits group captive in the United States. And it's also now the main sponsor of the Self-Funded with Spencer podcast. I chose to partner with Pareto Health for three main reasons. Number one, their dedication to improving the world of health benefits. Number two, their mission to reduce volatility and to make self-funding simple for mid-sized employers. And number three, the strength 
and scale of their program. With over 2,300 member groups and more than $1 billion of stop-loss premium under management, Pareto Health is the most robust solution of its kind in the country, period. Stay tuned for more information because I'm sure I'll be featuring them on an episode of the podcast very soon. Visit Pareto Health at ParetoHealth.com or follow them on LinkedIn to stay up to date on the latest news and developments. Well, at the end of the day, people do business with who they like, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I try to have a lot of energy. I try to really uh, seek to understand where somebody's coming from, right? Like, because if I can understand what you want and your needs, like, then I can, I can hopefully try to provide you with the best solution. I think for me, I'm still learning. I am constantly reading all the time about professional development, right? Like whether it's the actual healthcare space, whether it's sales, it could be marketing, it could be, I mean, such a variety of different things, but I think that's really cool about what we do is that it's, there's never like a stopping point Mm -hmm. to learning, right? It's, I'm always on this track to. Well, I think even if you're really good, Mm -hmm. if you stop, somebody else is going to beat you, right? Because they're going to keep going. So is there anything that like recent books or any nuggets that you've pulled that you really enjoyed? Or is there something you're reading right now that you really like? Yes. um, I'm actually reading um, a Simon Sinek book right now. Um, It's not, it's not the, the why uh, book. Um, I'm actually drawing a blank on the title of it, but I'm in the middle of it right now. And it's just talking through leadership and what it means to actually be a solid leader. Right. Mm, Um, Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, when I'm, I appreciate it. it's refreshing to hear somebody in your position talk about that continuation of learning. And I do think that's a career-long and that's a lifelong mm-hmm. endeavor. Before we dig into the transition to HPI, and yeah. obviously we'll spend a bulk of the conversation there, you told me a pretty funny um, skydiving story. So I, I don't know what it is. There's a mini theme of this podcast for people <laughs> skydive. I'm guessing well, someday I'm going to have to skydive. But you had almost like the one time you did skydiving was a pretty unique and kind of scary experience. Yeah, it so could was you super tell scary. Us, could you tell us that story? Yeah, absolutely. I was... Um, I I was younger at the time, right? I would I would never do it now, uh, now that I'm older, but we had about six people in our group. Um, we all decided to go through training. Um, that was, I don't know, it was probably six to eight hours long. And after that, you were able to go skydiving solo. So okay. like didn't go with an instructor. Um, they fit three of us each on these super small planes. Okay. And so we had, we had uh, the first group go up Everybody came down, but the last guy who came down, he, um, your, your parachute was supposed to automatically flare up. Uh, his did not. So whenever he came down, it's like waving in the air, right? And you're watching this from the We're ground, We're watching right? it okay. from the ground, yeah. And then, you know, you're supposed to have this reserve parachute, basically. Well, when he went to go push or pull down on the lever, uh, all of a sudden, the second parachute came up. And now they're, now they're like both flopping in the wind, right? Um, no, I gotta ask, are yeah. you thinking I'm about to watch a guy die? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we That's all were. What I'd be I, it was okay. so scary yeah. at the time. Um, he finally figured out he didn't pull his lever hard enough. And so when he pulled it a little bit more, thankfully it came up and the parachutes didn't intertwine together. Right. That's good. Yeah. Um, but he came down and I remember he was just a ball full of tears yeah. and, and then it was our turn. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, okay, let's go. <laughs> and the people that I was with, I, um, I remember one of them say, like, you don't have to do this, right? Well, I had already went through the eight hours of training, paid for it, like I was going, and so. Well, at least you got to see a little bit of what not to do. Yes. Uh, under- <laughs> 
So did your did your automatic one shoot open when you it came did. down? Well, it you did. were telling me though this was really interesting because I yeah. had this vision of somebody jumping on a plane. You just the door opens and you're like, see you later, and you it jump out. Like That's that. not so. No. So what did you guys do? Because yeah. it was totally different. I think with an instructor, you might just okay. jump out of the back, but if you're solo, um, for us they actually so the lightest person had to go last. So the other two went before me. I then go out, but it's interesting. Like on the on the wing of the plane is a is a bar and basically like this uh, kind of step stool. And so you step out okay. on this step and you have to reach out for the bar that's connected to the wing of the plane. Are you hooked into a cord at this We're point? We're not hooked okay. in. No. So you're just, I mean, so you're you literally slipped and just gone. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So terrified. Right. And then like, once you actually hold on to the bar, now you have to take yourself off of this step stool and far enough that you're not like whenever you go to to launch back like you're not hitting the steps yeah, right and breaking yeah. something so when he's and in the meantime your hands are transitioning on this like <laughs> no, on this you. handle or this bar while you're flopping in the in yeah. the air right you then have to wait for the instructor to say like oh only my goggles had slipped down i had contacts on at the time they completely oh your goggles slipped down your they face. did so okay. like the pictures show me with like my goggles down here on my on my mouth right my contacts at the time flew out of my eyes yeah, right? yeah. all that air or wind um and i couldn't quite tell i was blind as about at the time and i couldn't quite tell if he was saying let go or stay or, or like, what no. so yeah. <laughs> yeah so i eventually in all faith i had to had to let go and yeah, thankfully everything ended up working out. The so you said you couldn't. Out. Were you able to see like as you were descending uh, in the air? Uh, would you, I, did so you see everything anything? was everything was very blurry. So. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, so we know the ending of the story. Obviously, yes. you landed successfully. But like, tell me that 10, 15, 20 seconds of free fall. What, what was everything like? It was the scariest thing okay. that I've I've done. Yeah. But you yeah. didn't when you landed and you were safe. You didn't everything think you're fine. ever going to do that again. Or no? Um, I thought maybe eventually I would do it again. Again, now that I'm older, though, I mean, my gosh, that was 15, 16 years ago. I, there's no way I would do it. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> That's a, there was a guy, you, we talked about Travis, right? Yes. Travis, I think, has done something like 500 jumps or 1,000. I can't remember. And it's like, he just will randomly be like, hey, you want to go jump out of a plane? And then it'll he'll go and finish his day. And I'm sure. like, I, there's no way I could possibly no. do that. But look, why don't we do this? I think it's a good segue to start transitioning into HBI. Great. Before we get into that, though, how'd you get there? Like, what was the what was the precursor to yes, it? Yes, yeah. So um, the as I mentioned, I worked for a previous TPA. Um, I had a lot of success there. It was a really great company. Um, ended up leaving there after about seven years. Okay. Um, because oftentimes what you find in the TPA space is you've got a few different types of TPAs. You have those that are owned by the Bukas, right? Your mm -hmm. Blue Cross United Signa Aetna, um, or you have those that are owned by private equity funds. And it's happening more and more in the space, especially over the last couple of years. And sometimes they don't even make large announcements or press releases about it, right? Like it just happens and then it's like, it's pretty quiet mm. across the mm. across the board. For me, I did see the writing on the wall as far as the TPA at the time being acquired by Abuka. And I had been in the TPA space for long enough at that point that I saw the value of what an independent TPA brought to a client. And so um, when I went to look at a different space, I didn't know if I wanted to stay in the TPA space though. I knew for sure I was not gonna go to the carrier side, right? Like I drank the Kool-Aid long enough on the TPA side. Um, but I just didn't know if I wanted to go into stop loss, PBM, what that might look mm -hmm. like. And I, and I learned from a couple of friends in the reinsurance industry that HPI was a really solid TPA. And I thought, H I've never even heard of HPI mm -hmm. before. Like who's this, who's this TPA? Um, ended up meeting at the time, my, my previous boss and the CEO, and I just loved the culture 
of the company and ended up making a jump um, from from my previous CBA to this one. I've been here almost three years though, and they've stayed true to the promises that they made at the very beginning. Yeah, and what, what, what is it about? I mean, I, I think I understand the disassociation with Bukas, right? I think yeah. I understand how that independence can help. But from your perspective, where there's also that independence away from private equity sort of calling the shots or m- motivating you to do certain things that may or may not have been done if mm-hmm. you didn't have that pressure. So what is it about that that's really crucial for you? Yes. So um, like in the Buka world, right, or the private equity world, like you have to adhere to shareholders, right, like driving profits up. And in some cases, like let's just say the Buka cases, you're kind of you're kind of in this box, so to speak, right, like the solutions that work best for them. Um, in the private equity world, though, it's oftentimes like a TPA is looked at for their service that they provide. But in the private equity space, what happens? They usually cut the service, they boost the sales as fast as they can, and it ends up leaving the client and the consultant sometimes in a disruptive state, Sure, right? Sure. Um, because it's an exit strategy, not a long-term strategy. For HPI, what I truly loved about it was that we were founded 42 years ago. So it's not, it's not a small TPA. It's certainly not a new and up and coming TPA. Um, There's a lot of really deep roots in this industry that we have, but we're also owned by Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare, which is a not-for-profit organization. Okay. We act as a wholly owned subsidiary, which really means that we have full autonomy to act in the best interest of our clients, not to shareholders. Yeah. When you mentioned that that's 42 years old, but I, I, I share the, uh, the sentiment with you that I had not heard of HPI yeah. Um, yeah. until obviously joining Pareto. HPI is a kind of a preferred TPA partner mm-hmm. of ours. And I even saw your colleagues at, uh, was it, yeah, it was Arizona yeah. event recently. So the name is now everywhere yes. for me. But prior to that, I, I, it wasn't a name that I'd come mm-hmm. across before. So tell me a little bit about why it's been, is it just geographically focused elsewhere or why maybe he's been a little under the radar until recently? Yeah, really fair question. Um, up until probably four, four, maybe five years ago, we were primarily focused in New England, right? That's where Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare is. Um, HPI domiciled in, in Boston. So that's where a lot of the focus was. We then decided we've got all of these really cool solutions. And it was kind of a, um, it was this, we've, because of the Harvard Pilgrim backing, like the financial backing, we've been able to invest in certain companies that are only like, only helping our clients as far as evolving and and continuing to be innovative. So with that, they thought, why are we just keeping this in New England? Like, Mm -hmm. why not offer this up from a national perspective? So that's really how we got our start was just a few years ago. And so it's fair to say you probably hadn't heard of it until like the Pareto, like the Mm -hmm. Pareto side of things, right? Because we were from a sales perspective, like we just haven't been around long enough on the national side. Well, it's almost like a, it's almost an opportunity to kind of be a brand new That's brand. That's exactly though, what right? it is. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Did you do any rebranding during that course of time? We did. Yeah, I bet we you did. did. Okay, so so tell me about it. It's almost like a relaunch. We, yes, okay, absolutely. Cool. So we we refreshed our, our website. In fact, they tell a story, like if you were to ever come and do an on-site visit with us, uh, right before COVID hit, they they had all of this furniture that was like super dark. It's, it's like banking furniture, sure. right? Like super dark <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. you know, just um, a lot of dark colors. They then decided to like refresh everything in the in the offices. So everything is very crisp and light and a lot of light colors, blues, whites. Um, and 
then all of a sudden COVID hit, right? So they had all of this new furniture, mm -hmm. redesigned everything, and then nobody was there. So um, yeah, I think from a perspective of like, we rebranded our, like the logo, the actual website, the, the even the furniture in the office. I mean, is the everything. color palette different as well? Or did you, okay, so it like is. it's almost like a, just a flip of the switch yes. to a new company. That's right. Yeah. But obviously the services you provide, the infrastructure you built, the mm -hmm. people, they're all the same and yes. doing a good job. Talk to me about the efforts though to expand, to get the name out there. Obviously yeah. you're a crucial part of that, but what do we have to do to leave a geographic part of the country and now sort of expand across the country? What are the challenges and things like that? Yeah, so on the national side, we really did get our, uh, our niche, we were able to hire a lot of SMEs in the reference-based pricing space, right? Okay. So we we really did have our niche kind of in that space on the national side. That did evolve into though, using national networks when it makes sense, because not every client is ready for reference-based pricing, right? Mm -hmm. It also, back in 2022, we were able to acquire EHN, which is a clinically high integrate or like clinically integrated high-performance network solution. They're in 16 markets, but at times we have clients that want to use them as well. And so we had to become very flexible mm -hmm. um, outside, like on the national team, right? And that didn't necessarily mean saying yes to every cost containment solution that a client or a consultant wanted to bring to the table, but it was, how do we responsibly sell and continue to, um, I feel like be proactive in both from the client management perspective as we grew. And we've seen a substantial amount of growth over the last few years, but I think it all dates back to who we're owned by and having that not-for-profit kind of backing behind us, it really does allow us to invest in tools and resources and companies that, again, only help to provide value well, for our It's clients. a little bit of a misnomer, too, that this notion of an independence means you'll do business with anybody and everybody, right? right? You do actually have to be selective because yes. there are situations where that company maybe has a bad reputation, there's issues with them, doesn't really fit, and you have to be honest about whether or not it could bolt on to what yeah. you do, or it will have a good outcome if mm -hmm. you guys were to partner. So that's a, that's a very delicate balance, though, to strike because then you also don't want to suggest you have preferential treatment or you're saying no to things that the right. client really wants. Um, I won't ask you to bring up any situations where that has happened, but I'm, <laughs> I'm sure it has. But with that independence, though, um, I, I presume that gives you a ton of flexibility, right? So you it go does. into a new market. There's probably a lot of players in that market. There's certain networks that may be mm -hmm. strong, certain aren't. So tell me some of the flexibility or some of those capabilities that you do get outside of perhaps the Buka world where there are gonna be some limitations. Sure, sure. So we do have the access of national networks, right? You've got Harvard Pilgrim in, in New England, you've got Cigna uh, from a national perspective. We're able to um, access United at times as well. And then you have EHN and that is, that is up and coming. It's a completely different model. So when we have clients that don't necessarily need to have 98% of providers and facilities like across the US in network. Instead, they really wanna hone in on the best mm -hmm. quality of care that's possible at a reduced price. That's where each and can really come into play, right? They keep care local and I love that model. I think it's really consumer centric and focused and that's where we're really starting to see the market kind of evolve into. Yeah, I, I think you knew, I, obviously I featured Blake Allison yeah. of EHAN. Um, Oh, maybe about a year ago. I can't remember how long ago it was. Mm -hmm. And that was really, that was a great conversation we had. So it's good to know you guys are partnered. I don't want to go back to the reference-based pricing angle because you did say that there was a quite a significant portion of your business that's reference-based pricing. That's correct, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Again, that's how we kind of got our niche on the national side because we were able to cherry pick 
frankly, those that are really well known in the industry from an RBP perspective, right? So our our account management team, all very well versed and knowledgeable on reference-based pricing. The sales team that we have, like, came from selling, whether it was a, a reference-based pricing vendor themselves, or if it was just, there was a lot, like in my experience, it was selling a lot of RBP at my previous TPA, but it was all of these SMEs that kind of came to the table and said, okay, we have a, we have a lot of RBP experience. We know what works and what doesn't work. Now, how do we invest in that model? Right. And yeah. And I feel like there's a little bit of an evolution of, of the RBP space. I told yeah. you when we were having coffee, Claim Doc is a, a formal sponsor of the podcast, but I still obviously get to maintain independence of talking about that. But I can appreciate there's a couple of good ones out there that are doing doing it kind of the right way and doing it the new way. Because yeah. there was this older model that where it started, where it felt adversarial. And it was like, well, if you balance bill us, we're just going to go fight you in court. So yes. good luck. Yeah. Now there's a little bit seemingly softer approach that's being taken mm -hmm. to really get these providers to come around to this idea of accepting payment that way and seeing the value of doing so either from getting money quicker, mm -hmm. less administrative burden, and obviously if you have employers that are of size that are pushing for this, it seems like everybody wins if it's done right, but it's not yeah. always as easy as that. Um, that's the case. But you said there's opportunities though for also having like this dual oh, option yeah. network, right? Yes. So tell me, tell me how that works with you guys. Yeah. Sight is a complete game changer in the world of insurance brokering. As a broker, you know how time-consuming and error-prone the traditional RFP process can be. But what if I told you there's a better way? PlanSight is the only end-to-end -end RFP solution on the market made specifically for benefits agencies. It's like having a superpower that gets you an average of eight to 10 hours back per employer renewal per year. And the best part? PlanSight supports all carriers, all funding types, and all group sizes for over 20 different benefits. If you're ready to make your RFP process faster, more efficient, and more profitable, it's time to call PlanSight. Visit PlanSight.com now to book a free demo and discover the future of insurance renewals. Yeah, so um, there's a couple of, of scenarios, right? So we just recently won a pretty large client who had a buka in place as an administrator. They weren't quite ready yet to leave mm -hmm. that fully behind. And so they hired HPI and EHN along with like a wrap of reference-based pricing as another product okay. solution, right? And they're incentivizing that by offering a zero like a zero dollar deductible, whereas they increase the the buka deductible, right? So it's incentivizing through plan design, but it's also a way for us to come in and say, okay, at the end of the plan year, let us show you how well we actually performed, mm -hmm. right? Like how much it was that we actually saved you. But then also from a member perspective, because it's EHN, they're getting the best in class quality of care, right? right. Like let us show you that. And those members then are then gonna only tell the yeah, other they're going to be the internal right? champions, right? Yes. Like, oh, my God, I didn't have to pay. And it was like a great experience. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, I think that's you, it might take a year or two to come around. But are you seeing then where either that employer does away with that secondary Eventually. network or the mm -hmm. all the employees just proactively choose? Yes. OK. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And then the other the other option is to put in, let's say, HPI as the only administrator. And then we offer like a dual PPO offering. Right. So and it's it's kind of the same thing. Right. It's just we're offering a national network. And then alongside of that, we may offer reference pricing. We may offer EHN or a combination of, of 
both, you know, it really depends on the needs of the client, the size, the market. Mm-hmm. Like w- there's some geographical areas that are friendlier towards RBP totally. than they are others. There's, like I said, EHN is in 16 markets. It could make sense for them to be, you know, kind of the priority uh, network. So it really does depend on where the client's located. Yeah, I'm, an, I'm a big believer in it. And obviously when I think about who I partner with for sponsorships as well, I want to make sure that there's philosophical alignment and not necessarily just claim doc itself, but just the, the, the space, right? Mm-hmm. Like I do believe that RBP when done really well can save significant can. amounts of money for employers. And so I want to be an advocate for that stuff as much as possible. What about size segment that you guys operate in though? Because you told me you have some very large clients, clients and I assume yeah. that was the case but is there a sweet spot? Is there a focus for you nationally where you're really looking for a size range or can it be anything? Uh, it can really be anything that's above 50 enrolled lives. Um, but we did see a substantial amount of growth in 2021. About 48% of our new clients actually came from the captive space, really? which is your like 50 oh, okay. to, to 500, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and I think it's just the captive space has been really great for us because it's now these kind of small to mid-sized employers that used to just press the easy button, right? And now they're starting to get this flavor of, okay, but we could be doing more. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it's more work from an HR perspective, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So better member experience, reduced cost of of care, right? When I look at that, and I've always talked about how much opportunity is in this space, and I think we've done Mm -hmm. some studies that suggest there's like a quarter um, million businesses in the 50 to 500 segment or 50 to 700, something like that. That just tells you how many employers out there, if you can effectively transition them to self-funding, you can make that not only the transition itself smooth, but the implementation process Mm -hmm. and then the ongoing experience. And then for us, obviously, part of our job is to make sure that the the stop-loss side is is secure. Now they have access to all the things that all these jumbo employers have been doing in the past. And there's really no reason why a 75 life employer can't do the same things that a 7,500 life employer can do. But you guys are crucial in that, Mm -hmm. making sure the entire thing is is smooth uh, from a TPA perspective. Yes. Now, it, with that independence, you know, obviously there's there's things like PBMs. There seems like stop loss. There's all these bolt-on solutions that are out there. So, is it sort of like a, an open book, if you will, of what theoretically can be bolted on? I mean, are there any things out there that you really like, or you you find yourself gravitating towards from the solution side nowadays? Yeah. So, I think um, this kind of goes back to the the investments that we've made. So one of the companies that we have ownership in uh, is called MedWatch. Mm. And MedWatch is a health management company, right? So they do a lot of pre-cert case management, but they have truly vetted out a lot of the different kind of cost containment solutions that are out there. It could be PBM, right? So there's there's a variety of, of solutions that they vetted out. But I think it's really making sure that we, um, once we have a client in place, it's really making sure that we're appropriately managing uh, care, right? We're looking at access. We're looking at solutions that should be in place. It's vetting out the appropriate vendors. And mm-hmm. so while we may not say yes to every, like if you look at the PBM space, there's, I feel like every day there is a new PBM there, solution re- that's really, popping up, yeah, right? Yeah, there really yeah. is. Yeah. So we have to make sure that we're doing our due diligence to not just say yes to anything and everything, but truly understanding, like if you were to if you were to have a meeting with us, we would say we want to understand the intent of the client's plan, the intent for messaging to employees. And then if you bring on, if you do want to bring on a new kind of vendor solution for HPI, we need to make sure that we understand the intent of that vendor, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And that means full integration. It doesn't mean saying yes to to anybody and everything. And then 
kind of doing a, a, a half job, right? Yeah. Like a half decent job at it. Like when we invest in a partner, we want to make sure that we're, we're putting in our Well, you said that over coffee, and I really like that. The fact that you guys want to understand why is this employer trying to do these things? Mm-hmm. What is the actual goals, right? Yeah. If, if you're relying on us to, to spearhead that plan, what are we doing though? What's the yes. purpose? What's the intent behind that? And you said sometimes, even you have to ask a couple of times to really, you understand fully what they're doing. Mm-hmm. That is not something I've really heard anybody emphasize in your space before, not to say that that wasn't their intent as well. But I think that's important is knowing what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. And if we're going to be a, your partner for the next five or 10 years, what does success look like to you over yes. the course of that time? That's yeah. key, right? Yeah. If, um, if I ask someone, what does success look like to you? And they say, oh, we want to retain great quality staff, right? And that means richer benefits. But at the end of the day, they don't want to change anything about what they're doing, right? They want the vast majority of providers and facilities and network, and they make their decisions off of a spreadsheet. You're not, like, your, your richer benefits is never going to truly happen, yeah. right? Like, you're just shifting cost, right? And, and usually that goes back to the employee, unfortunately. And I can't imagine that uh, increases to, to pay are at the same rate as the increases to healthcare yeah. for an employee. Well, right? that's like somebody's like, I want to be in great shape. It's like, okay, well, you need to get to the gym. Yeah. No, I don't want to get to the gym. I just want to be in great shape. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you're like, just that's, fix it for just me. Just fix it for me, please. <laughs> well, so the TPA space, I talked to you a little bit about, I enjoy talking about it. Although there's, there's somewhat of this notion that in the industry that you only really hear about when bad things are going on with TPAs. Yeah. I don't know why that is other than people just like to point the fingers and maybe that's the most obvious reason to do so. But what makes you continually be excited after a decade in the space to, to talk about what you guys do? Like, how do you stay sort of invigorated uh, over time, you know, in this world? Yeah, I think, um, I think we have grown at a really great rate. And what I mean by that is we have not grown so significantly and we've not been able to keep up with the amount of growth that we've had, right? Like we are very responsible in what we do sell. We're constantly talking about what is a responsible sell. And that doesn't mean going into a certain geographical area and selling RBP when we know for a fact there's a lot of pushback or balance billing, right? It means, again, truly understanding what is it that the client wants and how can we how can we actually help them? How can we evolve them from point A to point Z successfully with very little disruption? And sometimes it's doing like a crawl, walk and run approach, right? It could be putting them on a national network and then evolving them into like an EHN model. It could be when we're on a finalist presentation, we often get asked, well, what's your, what's your recommendations as far as what types of cost containment solutions will, we can put in place? We can't make or give a recommendation on that without knowing what your data looks like, right? So it's responsible for us to say, let us have you for at least a year. Let us get you to where like our managed care team is actually able to uh, look at what the access is, the utilization, the experience, and then we can recommend solutions that would be best for you, right? But we've got to be able to have that data and, and utilization first. And so I think that's key. I think it's also going back to, again, because we are, we're owned by that not-for-profit, we're able to invest in our team. And that itself is key. So unique to, I believe, HPI. I've never heard of anybody else in the space doing it. Because we're known for service, the TPA spaces, we actually tie 6% of our team's bonus to more than 40 different internal performance metrics. Okay. So I always say like every TPA should be able to put fees at risk for performance guarantees. But I feel like we go one step above that by actually incentivizing our teams internally to do a phenomenal job, right? It's like, it's our own performance metrics. It's accountability for what we're providing to not just our clients, but our consultants. It's the stop loss and PBM partners that we have. It's the cost containment solutions that we have, right? So it goes back to 
fully understanding the intent of anything and everything that we do put in. Yeah, and so when I, I know that a lot of consultants ultimately listen to this, you know, if I think about what the audience is made up of, although I don't have true exact metrics of everybody's title and everybody's mm -hmm. space, I do know just based on feedback that there are a lot of consultants that listen to this. And so you're kind of speaking to a potential audience that would want to do business with you. But what is the ideal sort of persona of a consultant partner of yours that who you want to work with? Because I think yeah. it was really crucial to be able to state this is the type of people that we are successful with. So in your yes. mind, what is that? Yeah. ClaimDoc is a medical claim auditing and member advocacy company. We provide fiduciary services to employer-sponsored benefit plans, allowing them to create an environment where we ensure that the benefit plans are being charged in a fair and reasonable basis. My business is basically people, and it become a real simple transition. We thought it was gonna be far more complex. I've saved, we'll say hundreds of thousands of dollars. I could not say enough about ClaimDoc. Um, it's, you said it earlier, it's really easy to blame the TPA, even if it's not the TPA that's at fault, right? Like our job is to make sure that the best in class vendors are kind of a plug and play, right? So whenever a PBM is, may not be performing at its best, like we should be able to plug in another PBM that will perform at its best, right? Okay. That's, I feel like that's a large part of, of what we do for our clients. Um, but a partner from a consultant perspective is really making sure that they're in this, uh, like as a partnership, right? Like it, it is definitely a long-term strategy. It's not the moment that something is disruptive or there is a challenge. It's, you know, coming at us and, and blaming us, right? Or getting the client involved. Like it's truly coming together to find resolution for the challenge that's, that's currently there, right? Because there's always gonna be some sort of hiccup that's right. It could be uh, provider. Yeah, I don't think there's the presumption to never be, we will never make a mistake. Yeah, it's like, right. if we do or something happens, we can fix it as quickly as that's, possible. That's yeah, key, yeah. right? It's always coming together to find a resolution. And so we do look for those key consultants. And I will say we're very blessed at HPI to have found the right partners, right? Good. Like those who truly do want to like come to the table, provide, there's, there's some that do, like I've, I've got a couple of friends out in, in Austin who they constantly want to kind of push the envelope as far as new solutions in place. But they also, there's a huge level of respect there whenever we come back and say, yeah, okay, we'll do this for you. Or no, that's mm -hmm. not, like we vetted this this you know solution out or whatnot, so. Yeah. Well, that's it, and you're probably like us too. Um, we don't we don't like to be spreadsheeted. Obviously mm -hmm. we have a big initiative where we want to go beyond the spreadsheet. Yeah. It's all part of how we sell, um, but I presume TPAs are easy to spreadsheet yes. in the fact that you can show your admin fees and yeah. you can say, well, that one's cheaper than that one, but that doesn't even tell a, a percent, 1% of the entire story. So yeah. how do you sort of make HPI's value proposition jump off a page if you find yourself in that position? Or are you only seeking to do business with consultants that don't even put you in that situation in the first place? That's key. Okay. If, we're, if we're on a spreadsheet, I, I'm gonna say, and it could just be because of the 10 years of experience that I have, I'm gonna say 95% of the time we're gonna lose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you're right, like we we are not a one year sell, right? Like it's, if you're looking at, at fees only, fixed fees only, like it's probably never gonna happen. It's a three to five year strategy. And that's, I think what is important in the TPA space is whenever you're vetting out a TPA, it's asking them, who are you owned by and what is your either long-term solution or your exit strategy? Mm. And I think that's key, right? Because as a client or a consultant, you don't want someone who has an exit strategy of the next two years, yeah. right? Especially in the self-funded space. Like you, You're like, I'm you, not even gonna be here in two yeah, years, right? so good luck. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it's funny though because people within the the components of a self-funded plan tend to fixate on the things that are fixed costs in nature, yes. right? So the administrative fees, the stop loss fees, and they'll spend all their time obsessing over that, which might make up a third of the entire plan spend or less. Yeah. And so it's like, if you could just get them outside of this mentality of constantly buying on price, presumably if you're always buying on price, you're getting something that's being diluted in value or is not as yes. good as something else that's out there. And then if you focus on the component, which is the claims, that is the variable component, which is really driving all the other fixed fees mm -hmm. as well, I believe both of those things will take care of them yes. themselves. And so that's the way that we sort of filter out the people that we do and don't want to work mm -hmm. with as well. But why don't we zoom out, Elizabeth? I know okay. you probably got, you have a plane to catch, so you definitely got to get on your way. <laughs> uh, but let's zoom out big picture stuff, right? Yeah. I always like to ask a, a very similar question is your perspective on where this healthcare system that we have is going. So are you bullish? Are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Tell me your thoughts there. I'm excited about it. I think we have finally come around to a very consumer centric model, right? Okay. And I and we're seeing that in I feel like the innovative solutions that we're bringing to the table, like you, it's not just the con the clients who are asking for it or the consultants that are asking for it. It is it is actual partners within the space that are coming together to the table to say, how do we prevent unnecessary care and truly help the member navigate through the healthcare system? Mm -hmm. Like that's the that's the biggest key, right? I could use myself as an example. I went and saw my primary care physician who I've had for 15 plus years, took me six weeks to go see her. And then upon seeing her, I was referred to a specialist, only it took me five weeks to actually get the referral, right? And I still haven't even gotten a call back and that was two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, for me, even being in this space and am I am healthy, like, it's just, it's not easy to navigate through the healthcare system. Yeah. So how can we be better at that? And I'm excited for what's to come. Yeah, do you believe the private sector that we'll, we're gonna figure it out? I mean, do you think we, I know it's not gonna be easy, but do you feel like that we've got a, a, an opportunity to do I this? I do, okay. I do. I think we've truly evolved, especially since COVID. Um, and I'm I'm just excited to see it. Yeah, there might, there's forward. almost, and I don't like this idea of reimagining or resetting, but there, there was a little bit of a pause. And mm -hmm. I think that pause did cause some reflection. Yes. Obviously we saw the proliferation of, of virtual primary care and mm -hmm. telehealth and things like that. And those are definitely here to stay. I'm bullish on direct primary care. I'm bullish on some things that really take us back to this notion of care actual care in our yes. healthcare system, not just running you through a system. Mm -hmm. And so I am hopeful, right? But it's not an overnight thing. And, no. you know, I don't, I don't perceive that it's going to happen in the next couple of years, but I, I do believe we'll figure this thing out yeah. one way or another. And so I want to participate in that as much as possible. So why don't we do this? I'll ask you closing thoughts. What would you like the folks to, to think about as they part ways with us? Yeah. Um, I would go back again to, if you're vetting out a TPA, ask them who they're owned by and what their what their strategy actually is. I know at HPI, like we, we're looking at more than just what can we do for our clients? Like we have, for an example, like next week, we're, we're hosting our first women's advisory healthcare council. We're very excited about it because it's just, it's giving the opportunity for females across the industry. And it could be a variety of different consultants mm -hmm. from all over. It could be stop loss, PBM, cost containment, like females that are coming together to really talk through what's the success that others have had? What are the current challenges? So really giving a voice to these women and I and I love that. Very cool, how would we find out yeah. about that? I know it's obviously, by the time this comes out, it'll be too late, yeah. but is this yeah. something that's gonna be on a webinar or? So we are actually, so the, we're, 
doing the council uh, event next week, and then this is going to help launch into women's events across the U.S. Um, moving forward. Cool. So, What's it going to be called? Or yeah. did you say the name of it already? I haven't officially come okay. up with a name other well, than Women's Healthcare the Advisory okay. Council. <laughs> well, by the time this gets posted, hopefully we'll got we'll the name, name set and I'll link to it and all that good stuff. Yeah, but I do you. appreciate you you coming down and having a conversation with me. I hope this was enjoyable it for was. you, but I, you. I really, really enjoyed it as well. And maybe we'll do a year or two down the line. We'll, we'll do this again. Sounds good. Thanks My for pleasure. the opportunity. Yeah.